June of 2020, our class had its first session. Reading classic novels soon became our one obsession. With COVID-19 raging, we had nowhere we could go. So we zoomed in and recorded this stupid fucking show. We're reading books. We're killing trees. Our housemates and our spouses are saying, stop it, please. We're reading books. We're killing cedars. And Miss Charlotte's finishing school for wayward readers. Charlotte is our teacher and she's very optimistic that she can teach us something, even something quite simplistic. She's really quite an expert, has a dog named Mr. Darcy. But if she thinks we can learn, she's got her head right up her arsey. We're reading books, we're killing trees. Our housemates and our spouses are saying, Stop it, please, we're reading books. We're killing cedars at Miss Charlotte's finishing school for wayward readers. Daniel plays with puppets, which is just a little weird. He also is Canadian and has a luscious beard. Jerry has just graduated university, so she's the baby of this podcast, don't you see? Andrew is the oldest and has trouble concentrating. He thinks he's pretty funny, but his sense of humor is grating. A doctor, so she knows things quite obscure, but her degrees in agriculture, so she mostly knows me more. We're reading books until we're sore. My eyes! We're answering Miss Charlotte and competing for a score. Ask us why we're doing this, we really couldn't say. But listen and just maybe you'll enjoy it anyway. We're reading books, we're killing trees. Our housemates and our spouses are saying, Stop it, please. Oh, we're And welcome to Miss Charlotte's Finishing School for Wayward Readers, a podcast about old books. Well, well, like a little old. We're not working on Canterbury Tales just yet. Uh, on this podcast, a bunch of us are reading Wuthering Heights, several chapters per episode, and talking about it, hopefully in an entertaining and informative way, with our expert, Miss Charlotte Sampson, the titular Miss Charlotte of the title. Which Ooh, titular good means. morning. <laughs> Today we're covering chapters 7 to 9. This is episode 3, Feathered Beaver. Miss Charlotte's Finishing School for Wayward Readers is an audio production of the Yokohama Theater Group, or YTG, a non-profit theater company based in Japan. They, we, whatever, create devised original plays, and apparently we make podcasts too. Hi, Mom. If you want to support the theatrical work we do, you can head over to ytg.jp and click the support button. As has been our custom, there are four readers today, including myself. We will be talking about the book and answering questions to compete for points. The highest scoring reader will be crowned Teacher's Pet, and the lowest will wear the imaginary purple dunce cap of shame until the next episode. Today, I will be listing our participants in the order of the number of letters after their name. So, way out in front, we have Emmy Doe, HBSC, MAG, PhD, and probably Esquire and Junior, but I, like, I didn't ask. She went from teacher's pet to dunce over the course of the first two episodes, but Emmy likes extremes, and while she has worn the dunce cap since last episode, she could probably whoop us all in an Iron Man race, so there's that. Uh, coming in close second is our class instructor, the aforementioned Miss Charlotte Sam Sampson, MA, BA. Uh, Charlotte is working on those PhD letters in Victorian literature, making her the actual qualified one, which is why she is the person leading the class discussion and handing out the points. 
Uh, two of us are tied for third place. Daniel wishes PPD, which he claims stands for Professional Puppetry Degree. He is, as you may have guessed, a professional puppeteer. He also has a podcast called Weird Movie Club, which you should definitely check out. You can Google Weird Movie Club. That's how I found it. And as I said, he's tied with our next cast member, me, Andrew Wilner, BFA, or uh, Bachelor Fuck All, as we called it at theater school. And I'm a theater maker and photographer. I was also last episode's teacher's pet, so let's see if I can hold on to that title somehow. Uh, bringing up the rear of the pack is Judy Ito with her newly minted letters, BA. Her degree is in political science, but unless that is 18th century political science, I think she may have chosen the wrong degree program. Judy, you didn't consider your podcasting future when you chose your major. Big fail on the part. It's a big fail on the part of your guidance counselors. <laughs> uh, all right, welcome everyone. Are we ready to start the class? Yeah. yeah. Apparently. <laughs> We're gonna start off with the chapter summary. So, Charlotte, why don't you give us a quick, like two, two and a half minute sort of capsule of what happened in this chapter, and then we'll dig into it later when we get to the uh, discussion questions. So in chapter seven through nine, we see the aftermath of Catherine's visit to Thrushcross Grange. Uh, we see that the time she has spent with the Lintons has, well, something of them has rubbed off on her, at least the outward appearance of having done so. Um, they dress her up. They, they pretty her up. She has her little magical girl transformation. But as we will see, she's still very much Catherine. She's able to form a semblance of being polite, as Nellie Dean, uh, the second frame narrator, notes in chapter eight. She has a sort of she has a sort of double personality. She's able to present herself as a polite young lady when the Lintons are around. And when it's just the Earnshaws and Heathcliff, she's pretty much the same old Kathy. Now, we see that sort of blow out in chapter eight, where she has just a humongous tantrum, which we're going to discuss when we get into the discussion portion. Basically, uh, Hindley Earnshaw, the shitty brother, has left Wuthering Heights. He's gone away for a short time. This is after the birth of Harriton, so this is while he's still a wee little baby. Edgar Linton uh, decides to visit. He and Catherine have taken something of a fancy to each other, and Heathcliff is jealous. Heathcliff and Catherine get into a bit of a row, a bit of a disagreement over how little time she's spending with him lately. And yeah, she has a horrible tantrum. And in chapter nine, Hindley returns incredibly drunk. And we're going to talk about just, just how very, very violently drunk he is when we get to the discussion portion. There's some, there's some baby dropping. Luckily with, with no, with no injury, it appears. And. Then life just sort of drags on. So Catherine and Edgar Linton sort of arrange to get married. And hearing this news, Heathcliff just up and fucking disappears from Wuthering Heights. And they don't see him again for like three years. I feel like I'm missing something, but I am terribly, terribly, terribly <laughs> sleepy right now. That's all right. Uh, Miss Charlotte. 
Yes. This happened sometimes with my teachers back when I was in school. And usually on those days, we would watch a video in class while the teacher had a little nap on her desk. Honestly, that sounds pretty nice. <laughs> but I was going to say, I've thought of, I thought of a better, I just thought of, I'm an idiot. I thought of a better name and something Charlotte said triggered it um, with the dual personality of Catherine. The better name for the episode would have been Code Shifting. Because that's kind of what, what, Kat, what, what Catherine's doing. And, and she runs into trouble when she has to be both things at the same time. Mm. When he's Cliff and Edgar in the same room. So, right. damn it. I think we'll have to re-record that intro. <laughs> Uh, but, but then, oh, Feathered Beaver. Mm, also really good. Okay, uh, so our next little segment is called Vocab Corner. Um, I've got some stuff that I couldn't figure out that I looked up, but this is a great place if uh, anyone found hit, hit a word that they couldn't understand and it, it stopped them cold and they couldn't figure out. It's I think we can put our heads together and figure those words out. So I'm going to start with the one of the t- candidate titles <laughs> for the show, which was, uh, which is, was Feathered Beaver. So when Catherine comes back from Thrush Cross Grange, I had to say that Got slow, it in one. slowly, uh, she's dressed up in a long cloth habit, which is actually, uh, is actually riding wear. I went on Pinterest and found some photos. It looks like a big sort of like 18th century dress. And, uh, I'll, I'll put, I'll see if I can throw some photos in the show notes. Actually, just for you guys, let me just quickly share this. Well, Andrew, that doesn't look like feathers or like beaver. No, no, that's not the feathered beaver. That's the habit. Uh-huh. So it's just based. It just means riding. It's riding where they are long dresses. And then you wear trousers underneath so that you can, you know, actually sit on the horse without. You know, if you if you put your hand kind of a bit over the left and right side of this picture, it just looks like she has horse legs or he, I suppose. <laughs> I can't tell the uh, well, she, okay. of that person. It is, it is, it is a woman. She's in a, she's in actually oh, yeah. in a French military uniform, which is why the, there's gender confusion. Um, the, but there were apparently, yeah, I didn't dig into that. Um, so, okay. But I will post those in the show notes. Okay. Uh, so, she, yeah, so she's wearing a long cloth habit. Uh, and then it says a feathered beaver. And I'm like, I know what a, I know what a beaver is in medieval stuff because it's a it's a visor it's like an armored visor that that's part of the part of the armor that like you would wear if you were a knight but uh and it refers in the 19th century sometimes to like beaver pelt hats apparently people called those beavers uh and then <laughs> i did a i did an image search i was like okay uh feathered beaver hat or women's i think i wrote women's garment and it it gave me those like big um sort of russian pictures of women wearing those big russian caps like something something someone named natasha would wear out on her date with vladimir um so it's a kind of hat i think it just means a hat made out of a beaver pelt that's my guess charlotte do you know if i do know i don't remember Wow, I'm not being very informative. This no, that's okay. That was a okay. weird. I don't expect in you to. In my know defense, <laughs> Victorian fashion is just a humongous topic. Well, this isn't even Victorian because this is pre. This is like I think one of the Georges yeah, is still on the throne because it's eighteen mm. eighteen seventy five, eighteen seventy eight, something like that. That would so. make a difference. Do they have beavers in the UK, or were I, they imported from America? At this point, there were no more Eurasian beavers. All of their beaver would have had to come from North America. 
at this point in time, I have to imagine that they're not talking so much about the beaver pelt or the skin or the fur so much as the felt that was made out of the, the sort of the soft, downy, close-to-the-skin beaver fur that was made for really good waterproofing, like, waterproof felt. Not 100% on that. Honestly, I did not know that I was going to have to remember what a feathered fucking beaver was for this. This, this vocab section, I'm running it, so you generally don't have to. I just wondered if you knew. So, no, this mm. is not this vocab section, not your responsibility. My thesis supervisor would be terribly put out right now. Um, <laughs> she actually is doing a lot of work on fashion as a sort of concept um, in 19th century literature. And, yeah, this is sort of late 18th, but would sort of fall under the same category. 19th century fashions, they had basically figured out sort of early mass production. There was still a lot that had to be sewed by hand, but at the very least, fabric was being woven in factories at a rate previously unimaginable. And the number of different kinds of fashion just mushroomed throughout the 19th century. So, yeah, if there's a reason that I'm reluctant to speak definitively on the issue, it's because there's just so fucking much of it. You could spend your life studying the, the various fashions and fashion trends of the period. Yeah, indeed. So uh, moving on, is there, does, does anybody, did anyone else run into any words that they couldn't parse? Yeah, I, I ran into quite a few. I don't know if these are like just words that everybody knows and I don't because I'm stupid, but I, I, I went through the text and I underlined a few. Okay. Uh, coxcomb. That was mine too. It's, it's, it's in this Me case, too. it's referring to like a hairdo. It's a hairdo. I mean, at least. What kind of hairdo? It's like a, something you, you'd be proud of. So if you like go back to Shakespeare, there's like, like they say coxcomb a lot and it's, it basically, you know, the cock, like a rooster has the, like that sort of, thing on its head that looks like a Roman feather helmet thing that's called a coxcomb. And so if you're talking about someone's coxcomb, uh, you're, it's usually kind of an insulting way of referring to their hair because they're very, they're overly proud of it. So that when Hinley's saying that to Heathcliff, he, it's, it's a put down. Well, and he's also talking about pulling it longer. Yeah. Oh yeah. So they're talking about grabbing him by the, by the hair. So when you read that, you were like, oh yeah, I know what a coxcomb is. Yeah. But that's, that's that only because I, of- it's only because I studied Shakespeare. Okay. Uh, I think I think this was one of your alternative titles, but psalmody, psalmody. So the devil psalmody, it just means psalmody is just a old timey word for hymn book, like a hymnal. So devils, it's the devil's hymn book. So he's saying basically it's Christmas, book. I, the book that has the hymns in in the church. Oh, okay, okay. Where everybody, so it's the devil's, it's the devil's like religious songbook, and so I think he's referring to Christmas carols at this point, and I, I gotta say, I kind of agree with him on that. I think they're awful. Um, that's sorry, that's Joseph who's talking about that. Bairn, baby, it's a baby. Okay. It's an, it's a like a Northern English Scottish, it's kind of a Scottish word for for baby. I see. That was one of my words too. Equanimity. Aww. Buddhism. <laughs> equanimity. Uh, she had failed to recover her equanimity since the little dispute with Heathcliff. That's the sentence. Stop, anyone stop me if you've got a better one. I didn't look this one up, but my understanding of equanimity is like, in this case, like your, your, your balance, your temper. She hasn't like recovered. Equilibrium is kind of a close parallel to that word, I would say. Yep. 
So this next one is a is a figure of speech. I know what these words mean individually. <laughs> I just don't know what they mean together. Waxed livid. Oh, Ooh. waxed. Waxed means like expand. So um, wax means becoming. So, you know, when the moon is going from like a uh, crescent to full, we call that waxing. Right. So the opposite would be waning. So waxing livid would mean he's just becoming livid. And Charlotte. We're going with the alternate uh, definition of livid, which, yeah, it does mean like discolored, um, like a bruise color almost. So like shaking him so hard that like the blood rushing oh to, the, to the head, kind right. of turning purplish. So it's like livid is in a bright color as opposed to temper. Oh, yeah, that makes way more sense. Okay, so it's, it's a color thing. I see. Vociferating. Vociferating? Who wants mm. to take a stab at that one? It's a verb form of vociferous, isn't it? So what's the context for that one again? He entered vociferating oaths dreadful to hear. The dictionary says shout, complain, or argue loudly. Sounds right. I, I think we can stick that one with the rest of the sort of $5 words that Emily Bronte drops throughout the text. We can put it up there with the pious ejaculations. I guess it's better than, you know, just like a boring thing where it's like he said and then she said, you know, like <laughs> some amateur writers do. Okay, this isn't a vocabulary thing. This is just a thing I underlined. Lucky lottery ticket. was Were lottery tickets a big thing back then? I was surprised mm. that that came up. I don't think they were a big thing, at least not, not, not the way we would think of them. Hmm. That's a very good question. I'll tell you what. I will see if I can find the answer on my other screen. And, uh. We'll just, we'll just keep moving on with other words. We'll just keep moving on. But I'll see what I can, what I can dig up. Just one last expression. I just, it's an expression. I just didn't really understand this expression. Like wine through water. I haven't haven't heard that before. I've dreamt in my life dreams that have stayed with me ever ever after and changed my ideas. They've gone through and through me like wine through water. You're missing the 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 the, the part that comes afterward. And altered the color of my mind. So it's just like if you pour red wine into water, not white wine. <laughs> um, it, like the water goes pink, right? So you can't unpink the water after that. I think that's what there's. That's what that's about. As Was that like a common thing that people said? Nope. I don't. I doubt it. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe it was. One other one that was like an item of furniture that comes up a lot is a settle. Did you guys know this one that a settle is like? Uh, it's like a long bench that has like a really high back and arms, and there's often like storage space underneath, like a like a chest, like it opens up. So that's what a set. They keep saying like Heathcliff is like should like was hiding behind the settle. Oh yeah. Or sitting on the settle. Um, it, it keeps with the theme, right? Because the bed that that Kathy's bed was also like an enclosed bed. So, um, and then the other one, the other thing I found, which is which is actually this is this is a dialect thing is can't last. Like the original Mister Earnshaw referred to someone as a can't. I think it was Kathy as a can't last. It just means lively and lusty yeah well i i think lusty in the lively sense i mean not the feathered beaver sense <laughs> uh, all right anything else jumping out at anybody what does al 
manac mean? Almanac. How is it different than like a schedule? Do they spell it differently? Yeah, they spell it. They spell it with a CK instead of just a C. Uh. That's how you tell the difference between like stage almanacs <laughs> and real Aleister Crowley al- almanacs. almanacs. <laughs> That was, that was oh, a deep that's cut a deep for cut. you, uh, magic occult people out there. Yeah. You know what? I keep giving you negative points for those goofs. I'm going to give you five points for that. Yeah, Alistair Crowley yeah. reference. That's a good one. <laughs> also, um, because of this point, anything that helps to keep me awake is appreciated. So, Judy, just briefly, an almanac is like, um, it's kind of like um, it's a book that it tells you about like planting seasons and stuff like that it could be about the there's almanacs about everything but i think traditionally it was like oh it's april you should be planting your beans now and that kind of stuff so like a calendar kind of yeah kind of like a horoscope that gives you like actual useful information speaking of actual useful information yes would anyone like to hear a little bit about lotteries in the uk in the 19th century a little bit sure. yeah so the first lottery in England would have been 1567. So Queen Elizabeth I herself picked the numbers, basically, and it was a national lottery to raise money for shipbuilding costs. But when did they have the first giant check? <laughs> <laughs> You're losing one of your five points for that. <laughs> No, just kidding. You get to keep it. All right. So there is actually on the British Library website, and we can stick it in the show notes if we want to, uh, a copy of that like broadsheet lottery announcement. A very rich lottery general without any blanks <laughs> containing a great number of good prizes. And then it's sort of like like Renaissance black letter font, which I cannot read this early in the morning. Ugh. But in terms of the 19th century, obviously lotteries continued to smaller scale. In the 18th century, they ramped up a bit um, for funding military ventures. That was mostly what lotteries appear to have been, at least in the UK at this point. Government lotteries were abolished in 1826. So when Emily Bronte writes about the lottery... At least at the national level. I'm not sure if there were still local lotteries. There might have been. And again, don't know. Too early in the morning. But yeah, the national lottery would not have been a thing at the time that Emily Bronte was writing. So yeah, the, the mention of a lottery does kind of date the piece a bit. It's kind of a neat little attention to detail there. Cool. Let's move along. I think it's time for the reader response. Emmy, have you been excited about this? Waiting for this of to course. happen. I've been excited. Uh-huh. I've been excited. <laughs> um, does one of us need to lay down a sick beat? I this? was just about to say, does anybody, I, it needs to be kind of a slow, like, kind of beat. Anybody, can anybody do that? Uh, <laughs> nobody. I don't know if I can keep time well enough to do that. Plus, my microphone is not good for beatboxing. Gotcha. Um, well, um, all right. I guess, I guess <laughs> because of your piece. Come on, Andrew. Your powerful piece. No, I, I, I'm, you have the best best mic out of all of us. No, I'm actually, sure. a worse mic is better for beatboxing because it'll you get the <laughs> kind of the effect. Um, really, it's okay. It's going to be me. I'll just try without. Because it just it's, it's like it's going to be more embarrassing for me than you if I do the beatboxing. I think. 
Also not pleasant for the listeners on the other end. Oh my like, gosh, actually, like beatboxing. Can, can we wait for five seconds? My housemate is amazing at beatboxing. I'm oh, going to call him yeah. out. Why didn't you say so earlier? Yeah. I just realized. Okay, I was, I was that bad, wasn't I? Okay. <laughs> yeah, just when you started. guest beatboxing. got a guest beatboxing. Wow, this production is getting fancy. This is going to be good. I can tell. This should be the theme song for the show. <laughs> yeah. He was giving me coaching tips um, on how to how to how to rap. Yeah. He said that I don't have enough persona, that I need to be more tough. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but he's gonna come, I think. Yay. So yeah. It could be your ending song. <laughs> It'll definitely be the ending song for this episode. Yeah. So podcast. Yeah. This is my Asway Tyler. Hi. Hi Tyler. <laughs> so the beat needs to be like that's me. Okay. This is Emmy Go here to show you what I know. Throwing down the dunce cap for the chapter recap. Seven, eight, nine, got the chapter in a line. It's clear I don't know how to rap, at least I'll try to rhyme. Leave behind my Wuthering, Wuthering, Wuthering High Teeth Cliff. It's me, it's Kathy, I've come home and I'm so cold. Let me in through your window. Dress cross trains, they take Kathy in. Five weeks out the men, and they flip her to a ten. And Kathy's cut up the dude too. When Kathy's back to Wuthering Heights, hit me such a jerk. Eric comes to visit, and he goes to a jerk. Christmas dinner sounds delicious, but the characters are fucked. The crew feeds with Kathy's side and keeps us out of luck. In chapter eight, Francis dies in Henley's single dad. It's all too much the guy can't cope and pretty much goes mad. <laughs> Kathy's choice is labyrinthine and she wants a double life. Wild and free at Wuthering Heights and also Edgar's wife. But double life's really hard and Kathy finally cracks. When Edgar tries to calm her down, she flips up and attacks. In chapter nine, Nellie Dean pulls the Dr. Phil, ripping Kathleen's thoughts apart while staying pretty chill. Useless heart and sword and pride and shattered on a bench. Poor dude has to run away. Kathleen Eagles is the wench. Kathy searches high and low, but he lives long gone. She falls ill, goes to a granger, and hides that heights is done. <gasps> done. <laughs> Thanks, Tyler. Yay! <laughs> Bravo. Okay, wow. Oh, yeah. so good. That was I ruined that. The last part. You nailed that. <laughs> Poor dude has to run away. Kath's, Kath's ego is a wench. Kathy searches high and low, but Heathcliff, Heathcliff is long gone. She falls ill, goes to the Grange, and her time at Heights is done. There's no way I could have gotten that out. I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> Okay, I nearly lost my shit at, at 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 the Dr. Phil thing. So I'm giving you an A just on the merit of that alone, but that was amazing. That's a really high bar. That was amazing. So well deserved A. Wow. We are the rest of us are so fucked now. <laughs> I'm so glad I did the assignment before you. <laughs> so fucked. All right. Okay, so um Emmy, the overachiever. <laughs> 
has 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 nailed that report. Um, should we should we should we move into discussion questions? <laughs> yeah, let's 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 take a more serious tone. Cause boy howdy, these are some serious chapters. Boy howdy. Like, I mean, the tone was already <laughs> dismal, and somehow it takes an even darker turn. So in chapter seven, um, when we have Catherine's return to Withering Heights. So top of that second paragraph, I removed the habit, and there shone forth beneath a grand plaid silk frock, white trousers, and burnished shoes, and while her he- while her eyes sparkled joyfully when the dogs came bounding up to welcome her, she dared hardly touch them, lest they should fawn upon her splendid garments. So, how do you think that this passage as a whole sets up some of the dynamic that we're about to see? Daniel. Well, she doesn't want to get dog hair on her nice new clothes, but then she hugs Heathcliff and he's like really dirty, like pig pen. Dirt. Oh, I didn't mention a Sunday comic. Sorry. <laughs> like a pig pen. A pig like pen. I'll take an article like, in there. the place where pigs live. It's dirty. Nice save. <clears throat> Anyone else? Yeah. Well, just setting it's, it's, I mean, that, that whole, that whole interaction sets up the whole sort of code shifting thing. Where she's all, oh, oh, no, I don't want the dog's dirty paws on me. And then as Daniel say, Daniel says she gives like seven or eight kisses to Heathcliff, who has just been described by Nellie Dean as like disgusting. Like the whole time Kathy's been away, like he hasn't washed, he hasn't changed his clothes, apparently. Um, he's like filthy and disgusting and smelly. And she, he, she says things to him like she says, oh, you should clean up. Like I think she's trying to bring him along with her to some extent. But... It does set up like there's going to you can see that already there's going to be a conflict here. Like she's developed this new persona and then her old friend doesn't fit into that anymore. It's like when you go to, you know, you change schools like you you go like you go from like elementary school to junior high school and suddenly your friend is like too cool for you now. They still want to be your friend, but not when anyone else is looking and not when they have to like. Yeah. Did I personalize that? Yeah, I was. I just started to feel really sad for you, Andrew. Gosh, <laughs> that didn't actually. Ha- that didn't actually happen to me in in junior high school. Okay, buddy. Yeah, we- sure. Whatever you want to, us to believe. Sure. I think that. Okay, why don't we talk about code shifting? Because first of all, let's make sure that we have a, an a, like across the board definition, so that we and our listeners know what we're all talking about when we talk about code shifting or code switching. In this context, um, does anyone want to define code shifting for the class? I mean, code shifting is essentially when you speak one way to one group of people, speak and behave um, one way to like one group of people and one way to another. And everybody does it to some extent. Like you speak differently to authority figures than you speak to your like close friends. But there's also, it's also like, and, and actually, yeah, in some in some situations, the, the the code shifting is much more exaggerated. Like in Japanese culture, when you're speaking to someone who outranks you, you're even using different language yeah. uh, than you are to someone who's like you're inferior. Mm-hmm. It's different and grammatical structures, isn't it? Why is it called code shifting, though? It's a code that like shows that you're part of a group. The code that the group understands. Yeah, but also it like it marks your membership in that group. So she's speaking different codes to the people at Weathering Heights and 
Wutherth Cross Grange. Yes. Well, even like not just even at Wuthering Heights, if the Lintons are there, then she. Yeah. Yeah. She coached. And also, to anyone who's not Heathcliff, she kind of coached it. Like she goes into that. Yeah. Heathcliff is a group on his own. Yeah. And Nellie Dean sees a bit of that other Kathy, but she kind of looks like she hides it from everybody else. Does that definition work? That was good. Um, Three points for tossing that in. Oh, huzzah. And um, I actually really like that. I I hadn't thought of it in terms of code shifting, but that's a really good observation in terms of how Kathy changes, because she doesn't really do that until she goes to Thrushcross Grange. Like, up to that point, she has known life at Wuthering Heights and nowhere else. So she doesn't have much incentive to alter her personality. My dog, Mr. Darcy, has just showed up. Oh, that's what that noise was. His tail, I guess. No, it's his, his, it's his claws clicking on the, on the floor. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I considered it kind of like um, a, a, a double persona type thing, like um, two-faced. I'd n- I hadn't heard of the term code switch before, so that's an interesting way of framing that. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what, I mean, that's, you, I think that's essentially what Nellie Dean says, right? Mm-hmm. She says there are two Catherines mm-hmm. at the beginning. But I think that the difference between the sort of double personality and just identifying it as code switching, it gives her a bit more agency in the process. Mm. It's not that she herself is is changing, but the way that she acts mm-hmm. has to be different because that's just the way that people at Thrushcross Grange are used to speaking. Mm-hmm. So it's not it's not so much that Catherine herself undergoes a transformation, but she learns how to alter her demeanor as needed. And because it's just such a... These two are such radically different environments, it appears, at least to Nellie, that this is a whole new Catherine. But we do see the just the, the tremendous stress that Catherine has to undergo with just constant code shifting. And then when Edgar Linton shows up... Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, when all the Lintons show up. But like when, mm-hmm. when Edgar Linton shows up at at that time when when hindley is gone it's just such a clashing of these two different environments that the the stress of it throws her into a tantrum mm-hmm. but yeah I, I like that as a model for for catherine code shifting versus a sort of double personality it's it's much more elegant i think we can't really discuss the novel withering heights and Heathcliff's ethnicity without talking a little bit about Orientalism. So the term Orientalism was coined by Edward Said, um, who did a lot of work in what we would call post-colonial studies. Um, the idea being literature that comes out of places that were colonized has to, in a, in a sense, wrestle with that history of colonialism. And especially looking at either writers from the 
from the colonized point of view, can tell us something about how the history of colonialism by the colonizers is very much sanitized and often sort of fantastical. Like the way that colonizers, and in this case we're gonna we're gonna be talking about the British, viewed other places, places outside of Britain, um, in sort of almost fantasy terms. And Edward Said called the phenomenon Orientalism, which was this sort of ethereal, otherworldly depiction of either places or people from the Orient, from the East. And to the British in the 18th, 19th century, the East was basically anywhere east of, like, Greece. So it's a huge, huge area. And they didn't always make a whole lot of distinctions between which places. We talked last week about Lascars and how there was just sort of a catch-all for any sort of sailor who was pressed into the service from, like, South Asia or Southeast Asia. But the term itself uh, came from the book Orientalism, 1978. And Said has sort of become the most prominent figure, at least, for somebody. If you're going to be studying post-colonialism, you're going to run into Edward Said. I mean, not literally, the man is dead. Um, died 2003. But you have to sort of bump up against that concept. And if we're talking about Heathcliff, we've got to talk about Orientalism. So... What are some ways in which Heathcliff is described, especially in chapter seven? So I'm wondering if any of you noted this passage in particular. Oh, oh the one where the one where Nellie Dean says, "Oh, your dad could have been the emperor of China, and your mother an Indian yeah. queen." Yeah. Oh yeah. Like, oh. I, I, my my note for that was, "Holy shit, this part doesn't age well." Yeah, my note was, "Yikes." Was that? It was like meant to be a compliment. She was to make him feel better. Yeah, what Judy said. She was trying to make him feel better. Like, no, you know, you're not like some kid from the gutters. Your dad could have been the emperor of China and your mother an Indian queen. Even though those are like, like, pick two points in the quote unquote Orient, and they're about the most furthest apart you can get. I think. I mean, based on the capital, sorry, the capital cities, not because China and India do share a border somewhere. But yeah. So. Why don't we take a look at that passage? Because there's there's a lot of stuff going on here. <clears throat> I mean, first of all, sort of leading into it. If you were a regular black. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that line. Ouch. Yeah, okay. <clears throat> so leading up to that, we've got, so this is the, so this is Nellie Dean sort of comforting Heathcliff. First of all, she starts with how much bigger and stronger Heathcliff is than Edgar Linton. You are younger, and yet I'll be bound you are taller and twice as broad across the shoulders. You could knock him down in a twinkling. Don't you feel that you could? Heathcliff's face brightened a moment. Then it was overcast afresh, and he sighed. But, Nellie, if I knocked him down twenty times, that wouldn't make him less handsome or me so. I wish I had light hair and a fair skin and was dressed and behaved as well, and had a chance of being as rich as he will be. So that was my first sort of yikes moment. But then we get down to... I'm going to skip ahead a couple of paragraphs. We might as well read this whole thing. Does that, anyone 
actually want to sort of volunteer to read. So the paragraph starts sure. with, a good heart will help you. Right, I got it. A good heart will help you to a bonny face, my lad, I continued. If you were a regular black, and a bad one will turn the bonniest into something worse than ugly. And now that we've done washing and combing and sulking, tell me whether you don't think yourself rather handsome. I'll tell you I do. You're fit for a prince in disguise. Who knows but your father was emperor of China and your mother was an Indian queen, each of them able to buy up with one week's income, Mothering Heights and Thrushcross Grange together? And you were kidnapped by wicked sailors and brought to England, where I, in your place, I would frame high notions of my birth, and the thoughts of what I was should give me courage and dignity to support the oppressions of a little farmer. One of the aspects that we see in sort of Orientalist depictions of the Far East is sort of wealth and decadence. Like this notion that that the East is a sort of magical land of spices and riches and gold and jewels and, and all that sort of thing. Obviously, this is a very idealized version of it, but what I think we're seeing here is a very, very European, very sort of British fantasy. I want you to think of Emily Bronte as a person. What we know of Emily Bronte's life is that, as I've mentioned before, she was kind of reclusive. Um, she traveled a bit of the world, at least as far as, as far as Brussels, but not any further than that. Most of what she knew about the world would have come from books, and what she would have known about anywhere east of Greece would have come from books written by people who were part of the British colonial project. So I think, even though Nellie Dean is sort of supposed to be a little bit ignorant, and, and I think this is very much a caricatured um, depiction of British attitudes toward the East, it's not necessarily something that was outside of the realm of, of reality. I mean, we know that Nellie is just sort of making up this grandiose back, background story, but the fact that Heathcliff's skin color alone is what sort of enables her to envision this, this very fantastic origin. I mean, geopolitically, it's very unlikely the Emperor of China and the Queen of India, not, not, that would have, that, that would have rather changed the geopolitical landscape of, of Asia in the late 18th century. But I think the takeaway from this passage is that Emily Bronte's kind of a basic white girl. And she's got this character who is dark skinned features mark him out as being from, I don't know, somewhere in the East over there. Emily Bronte does not specify. And so when we read Wuthering Heights, we need to keep in mind that she's writing out of that context, out of a context of sort of mid-19th century British colonialism, in which a lot of distinct geographic spaces were sort of crushed into one sort of amorphous blob that is the Orient. And so saying that Heathcliff is probably from there is in itself a noteworthy aspect of the text. Any any other thoughts on that? Uh, can I ask a question that's related to this passage, but not related to the Orientalism specifically? Absolutely. Um, so Nellie Dean, is she kind of into Heathcliff? 
because she seems to hate start hating Catherine more and more throughout this for her behavior towards him. And she's always there, like, you know, sort of trying to pump Heathcliff up. But like, why would she bother? She doesn't give a crap about Catherine. Like she, Catherine cries mm. and she's like, oh, fuck that. Fuck that basic bitch. Um, like Catherine, basic. Uh, but she, yeah, she doesn't care about Catherine crying, but she cares if Heathcliff's upset. And he's just as horrible to her sometimes as Catherine is. Like he ignores her when she's trying to help him. Uh, yeah. So I'm just like, is there? I, I mean, we're 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 not all the way into this book, but but she said that she I'm, made I'm, a promise to take care of him. Yeah. To so it's it's her love for Mister Earnshaw, but it doesn't seem to be. She doesn't seem to think of it. I don't know. She seems like she's not just taking care of him, but she's actually invested. You know, it's one thing to like. It's one thing to go, oh, yeah, okay, I had to keep my promise to old Mr. Earnshaw because I loved him so much. But, like, the other characters are also very strangely, like, devoted to, like, keeping their promises to elderly people. Like, Edgar's like, <laughs> I promised my mom I wouldn't talk to Heathcliff. Like, Yeah, that was really? the thing back then. <laughs> people used to take well, those actually, promises more seriously, I think. Maybe. Actually, Edgar broke that promise. It's like Japan. It's someone else who said, your mother said you weren't supposed to talk to him. He's like, I didn't speak to him. I didn't speak to him. I spoke kind of at him. But it's different if it's like a death wish, right? <laughs> Those you really got to take seriously. The Like wish on yeah. the deathbed wishes. Those are more important than regular promises. Right. Anyway, that just kept coming up in my notes. It's like, is Nellie Dean kind of into him? Is that that's why she can think? It's like, if she's just taking care of them, him, can she really think of this, this whole romantic story? I mean, is that maybe in a sense how she thinks of Heathcliff? Mm. Um, you know she doesn't normally seem taken to flights of fancy but here she is like concocting this tale this is something i would expect a bronte sister to do not nelly dean who's generally reasonably practical i'm gonna say no only because there's a bit of an age gap there i think they were even if there's an age gap they were kids together there's no more age gap than there was between princess amidala and anakin skywalker and you know that worked out real well Emily Bronte definitely used that as reference. How did he not Absolutely. lose points for that? <laughs> <laughs> Charlotte's distracted. <laughs> you can just you can also just say no. You are the TG. Yeah. Dean has Nellie Dean got the hots for Heathcliff? You go no. no. That's not that's not a thing. That's not what this book is about. You're barking up the wrong tree. Yeah, I think that her little pep talk is more of a like older sister to younger brother kind of thing. Like, you're a handsome young man. All the girls would like you if you just, if you just cleaned up a bit. Like, I don't think that it's sort of displaced attraction to Heathcliff. I think it's, it's a sort of wish that he could grow into his potential, if anything. All right, sorry. Shall we move on? Yes. Down at the bottom of chapter seven, we have a little interlude um, between Nellie Dean and Lockwood. What do we make of that? So we sort of break out of the frame narrative again. Um, thus interrupting herself, the housekeeper rose and proceeded to lay aside her sewing, etc., etc. And then Mr. Lockwood, you know, complains at her. Oh, the story was just getting good. You know, like... Uh, 
And he, he is also like, well, I don't need to go to bed till one o'clock. I know. I don't get up what till 10. the it's F, like, man? It's like she works. She say she actually says it very politely that like some people have to get up early because then half the morning's gone if you sleep till ten. Like because some people have a fucking job. I, I underlined a passage from this section. Ooh, um, she she says a person who has not done one half his day's work by ten o'clock runs a chance of leaving the other half undone. I think I need to start following that advice because I almost never have <laughs> half my day's work done by 10 o'clock. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think this like passage really like hammers home what a dick Lockwood is. Does it not? Like, I, yeah. The guy's yeah. a total douchebag. If it wasn't clear from the beginning how abrasive and unpleasant it is to be around Lockwood generally. I think this is a really, this is a really good illustration. And so yeah, let's, do you think Lockwood even notices how much of a dick he's being here? Oh, no clue. Was this scene written as like a comedic moment to break up the tension between like the flashbacks where there, she was like, it's getting pretty serious. Maybe I'll have like a funny little return of like Lockwood just being a dick for, you know, <laughs> just to make the audience laugh before going back to the dark baby attempted murders yeah. and stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's what it feels like. I think that's a good observation. Like uh, two points for that, Daniel. Is this the section where we also find out that she's reasonably well read? Like, ooh unexpectedly well-read. I can't remember if it's this interruption or the other one. Um, but I think it's this one where she says something about, I've read could, all the yeah. books that aren't in French or Greek or Latin, yeah. basically. Oh, yeah. I think you could not open a book in this library that I've not looked into and got something out of also. Doesn't mean she's read all of them, I suppose. She's just looked into them. <laughs> maybe maybe they've got the pages are carved out and there's like a bottle of liquor inside. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a book in this library. I haven't looked into it, you know what I mean? <laughs> oh. I mean, the fact that despite the work that she has to do, that she manages to catch up on, you know, the, the fact that she reads the books in the library in her sort of downtime, um, I think it's meant to put Lockwood in his place a little bit. Because Lockwood is supposed mm. to be like this cultured gentleman from the south of England. And he has, in every way, underestimated just about everyone that he meets. And I think that this kind of, it kind of goes to something that I said last week, um, that Nellie Dean kind of gets in a, a, a bit of a, a subtle burn on Lockwood. You know, we don't take to strangers in these parts unless they take to us first, I think is how she expressed it. Yeah, this is again, Nellie Dean very subtly, in a way that he has no hope of really truly recognizing and appreciating, letting Lockwood know, or sort of trying to take him down a peg by bringing herself up a peg. Like, he has pegged her quite low in class, and she doesn't really argue with that, but her stance is more like, eh, I'll take being working class any day as long as I'm not, you know, a pretentious fop. She doesn't say so out loud, but that's sort of, I feel this is the implication. Like, all other things being equal, if she had had the same opportunities as Lockwood, she would have done more with her life than he has mm. up to this point. Okay, so let's get into baby murder. Yeah. Okay. Uh, 
let's talk about the drunken rage that Hindley is in. Just before we get into that, when he's in the rage, mm-hmm. it's noted that Nelly unloads his fouling piece, which is his gun, because he's she's worried he'll, he tends to he tends to play with it when he's angry. And she's worried he'll shoot somebody. Is this Chekhov's fouling piece? Is what I want to know. Is this gun gonna it, this? You know, if you if you show a gun in chapter eight, it has to go off by chapter twelve or something like that. Chapter thirty or something like that. Yeah, it's not a good sign. I just want I just want to put a pin in that for a future episode, possibly. I just found it really relatable, you know. (laughs) So there's a passage in chapter nine. This is part of sort of Catherine Linton's tearful confession to Nellie Dean. Let me see if I can find it so that we can all get on the same page. This is also, while we're waiting, this is also the chapter where uh, Heathcliff says that Hinley's trying to kill himself with booze, but unfortunately, he's too strong to be able to do that. <laughs> he's going to outlive us all. <laughs> it's weird because it's like he—he he obviously hates him, but he's also kind of giving him a bit of a compliment. It's kind of well, it's kind of like a man thing. He's giving him like a manplement. Okay, it's a little bit past halfway through, so it's the paragraph that begins. It is not retorted. She. We have Catherine giving her sort of contrasting assessment of both Heathcliff and Edgar Linton. My love for Linton is like the foliage in the woods. Time will change it. I'm well aware, as winter changes the trees, my love for Heathcliff resembles the eternal rocks beneath, a source of little visible delight but necessary. Nellie, I am Heathcliff. He's always, always in my mind, not as a pleasure any more than I am always a pleasure to myself, but as my own being. What do we think of Catherine's attitude towards both of these of these men? Does it sound like love? And if it does, how would you characterize it? I feel like a lot of my girlfriends have the same dilemma, you know? (laughs) You know, do you have this one character who is like, not maybe not the best life partner for you, but keep getting drawn back to him. It's like Ethan Hawke and Ben Stiller in um, Reality Bites. Exactly. I'm the only person who's old enough to have seen that movie. Never mind. But basically every teen drama, my so-called life, come on, like every teen (laughs) drama has these two characters. Yeah, my so-called life is more of a Cerno de Bergerac situation. (laughs) Because they read the notes and the yeah, it was very Cyrano. To keep it to um, keep it somewhat relatable, even <laughs> though now this is a dated reference. Twilight. Mm. You know, are, are we on Team Edgar or Team Heathcliff? And just and just like Twilight, both choices kind of suck in their own special way. Yes, it is a romantic passage, though. It. It is, but it's in the sense of like love is pain. It's very, it's very angsty. It's very sort of drama-ish. It's very what's the word? Like goth. Yeah. Um, love is pain. Uh, Isn't it is, though? <laughs> yeah, sometimes. But also, but I like, was confused because I felt like before this point, before her big confession, um, Kathy and. Um, Heathcliff's relationship seemed very 
brother, sister, bestie, kind of like not romantic at all. Yeah, I agree. I think because like they're not even technically allowed to be friends even yeah yeah i think it's a little bit more complicated than just mm, like a romantic relationship it's they're not Mm -hmm. even allowed to have a foundation Mm -hmm. did you all think that her plan to marry a rich guy so that she could financially support heathcliff was like a cool plan you know, not just measure, not just a rich guy, but like a reasonably, well, she thinks he's really, she thinks he's pliable. He appears pliable. I think the one issue that he's not going to be pliable on would be Heathcliff, right? Like if this guy has a backbone at all, it's going to be against Heathcliff. Otherwise, they're like, her experience with him is that she's, he's like putty in her hand. So I don't think I can see, and Nellie Dean says that she's like, I don't think it's going to be as easy as you think it is. Uh, so I think that, yeah, she has this, yes, she had this, this image that she, he's easy to control and that he'll still be easy to control when he essentially like owns her when, when she is his wife. It almost seemed like he had a backbone for a minute there though. Didn't it? Yeah. But it's, yeah, it did. But that, but that just showed that he didn't. Mm. Right. Right. Because when it comes to her. Yeah. I think the only, the only things that are like super important that we mention just plot wise that happen here are that, uh, Francis dies, so Henley's wife dies. She's basically coughs and dies. Um, is the way <laughs> the death actually plays out. <clears throat> uh, and then the baby from that 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 she had, Harriton is born, and almost murdered at one point. And Heathcliff regrets saving him as he gets dropped from the stairs. He he didn't realize what was going on. He he rescues him and oh, I should have just let him drop, and I would have had my revenge. So those are the two. Those are the those are two significant things, just because they. There's the two characters we have to, well, one we have to say goodbye to, and the other we have to remember because I'm, I think he's going to pop up again. Oh, and then the other major plot point is that Catherine actually gets married, right, and heads off to, right, and then kills her in-laws by accident. Oh, that's right. (laughs) She kills. Yes, yes, they die too. (laughs) Yeah. So we've lost basically all the, all the older people are now dead, other than Joseph, who apparently is going to live forever. Okay. So, can you do a quick fun fact, Charlotte? Miss Charlotte's Bronte Bites, brought to you by the Bronte Bites Corporation. Now with less arsenic. So, the fun fact for today. When the Brontes were kids, so the surviving Brontes, that would be the uh, the four youngest actually, Charlotte, Anne, Emily, and their brother Branwell, when they were kids, they created these very elaborate fantasy stories that they actually based off a set of toy soldiers that they got. And they would, they would come up with these elaborate settings and plots for their soldiers and like little magazines for them. And they actually wrote them on little teeny tiny scraps of paper, like toy soldier sized, like to that scale. They started out writing about a land called Angria, and sort of midway through, Emily and Anne actually broke off and did their own sort of spin-off series about a, a land called Gondol. These little teeny tiny books, some of them still survive, and they are like three by four inches. They're like, well, they're, they're to the scale of toy soldiers, and like really tiny, minuscule writing. It, 
it was very impressive. Like, considering that they were in their early teens, or like preteens, when they started mm. this project. So yeah, they were they were writing, and writing as a family from a very, very early age. And so it's probably not surprising that they published together, and it's implied it was sort of collaborative, or at the very least, they discussed their work with each other. Right. So they were like the Von Trapps of Victorian literature. You know what? That's not a bad analogy. Three more points. Okay, so uh, let's move on to cathartic pop quiz. Ooh. Moving on to the pop quiz, which is the chance for those of us who don't have very many points to catch up and see if we can pull ahead and just save our butts from being uh, in the dunce cap. How many weeks does Catherine stay at Thrushcross Grange the first time? Uh, Andrew, you had your hand up first. Five. Five, that's correct. What three-word phrase, and this is in Chapter 7, does Mrs. Linton used to describe Heathcliff. Jury. Naughty swearing boy. Naughty swearing oh, boy. That was one of my alternate episode titles. I just didn't remember who'd said it. Mrs. Linton begged that her darlings might be kept carefully apart from that naughty swearing boy. Uh, five points. Yay. What does Heathcliff throw at Edgar Linton's face? Ooh. Emmy. Applesauce. I'm going to give you three points for that one. What kind of applesauce? Hot applesauce. Yep. Okay. Unfortunately, not hot enough to Phantom of the Opera him. But yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I'll give you the full five points because, yeah, it's important that we note that the applesauce is hot. It's a very unpleasant experience, I'm sure. I wanted to make a note of the container that the applesauce was in because Ooh. it was a word I had to look up in the dictionary. And what is it, Daniel? I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I can find it. Was it Turin? It is Turin. What's Turin? Turin is like a like a big pot, basically. Yeah, like a basin for for soup or sauces. Okay, this one might be a gimme. Um, how does Francis Earnshaw die? Emmy. Consumption. Consumption. Five points for consumption. Just to make it clear for the listeners, what's consumption? Andrew. Tuberculosis. Tuberculosis. I'll give you two points for that. Okay, there's a place that is mentioned. It's where Joseph goes to load some lime. What is the name of the place? Jury, yeah, do you want to give us an answer? Penistone Crags? Yes. And, so I'm going to give you five points for the answer, and a bonus two points for getting the proper pronunciation. For the listeners, it is Penistone Crags, but it's spelled... Not a sexually transmitted disease by the way, an actual place. Mm -hmm. Well, Peniston Crags is not a place, but Peniston is, definitely. But yeah, the first five letters, it just spells penis. It's one of those place names that that gets a lot of attention, but in reality, it's just kind of a, you know, yeah. regular... Okay, now this is one that probably none of you are going to get, but we'll try it anyway. While trying to comfort little Harriton Earnshaw, Nellie Dean starts to sing a little song. Can anyone tell me the title of the song? Andrew, you've got your hand up. I can, because I looked it up, just digging through my notes. It is the... Oh, yeah, the Ghost's Warning. That's correct. And it is a... It's originally, it's a translation of a Danish song 
And the person who translated, whose name I don't remember, uh, translated it, that it was not written like that because it's ye olde. It was written that way because, uh, the person who translated it thought it sounded better in a Scottishy dialect than in just plain old English, the plain old contemporary English of the time. And, but what's weird is Emily Bronte's version is not that version. She's changed some of the words. So either she had a different source or I don't know, but it's about children. Uh, weeping in the night because they're, well, that's about them weeping in the night, that section. But basically it's children, their mother died, their stepmother is evil, and their mother comes back from the grave to help them. Thank you, That's Andrew. what that song is about. Yeah, so it's called it's The Gay 20 Story. minutes of my life today. Um, the original translation was Robert Jameson. Jameson, I guess. But yeah, that's correct. Danish ballad. Interesting thing about that, though. It was published for the first time by Walter Scott in 1810. So a little bit anachronistic here for Nellie Dean to be singing it back in the 18th century, especially since this was not an actual folk ballad, like this was composed quite deliberately. It's especially strange that Nellie Dean would be singing that song in particular. Last pop quiz. When Catherine is having her, you know, drama moment, her little breakdown in chapter nine, she beats her hand against two parts of her body, and that's where her soul is, according to her. Where are they, Daniel? Her head and her breast. Head and breast. Or her forehead and breast. Forehead and breast. Even better. Here and here, replied Catherine, striking one hand on her forehead and the other on her breast, in whichever place the soul lives. In my soul and in my heart, I am convinced I am wrong. Okay, so yeah, uh, five points for that, Daniel. Yeah. Charlotte, I think it's all that's left to do is tally up points mm-hmm. and do the assignment of homework. Okay, so wow, this episode was really quite competitive. Um, so Andrew weighs in at 13 points. Jury, you have 12 points, as does Daniel. Emmy, you've got 10. Ugh, again! I don't know how that happened. Now, unfortunately, that that means that we're still in the same, um, we're still in the same teacher's pet and adult situation we were last week. Uh, it's going to so, happen. It's going to happen sometimes. Just for the reference, Charlotte, you're allowed to give points much more arbitrarily. You can put your thumb on the scale. Mm. So just remember that going forward. You know what, Emmy? You can you can give me measly points for answering something. You can give someone else like 100 points for answering Emmy, something. because you brought in a special guest for your rap Ooh. to the box, I'm going to give you another five points. You're the teacher's pet. <laughs> oh, which means going that, from the basement that we've got we've got a double dunk situation with Jury and Daniel, and because Daniel has wait, not wait. done a reading response yet, wait, can wait, I wait. can I get one and a half points for doing that hook? I just want to be higher than Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be higher than Andrew too. How can I get higher than Andrew? <laughs> We're now devolving into. <laughs> you're just you're just extending the length of this podcast, making my job editing this fucker so much harder. <laughs> All right, no, no, I'm I'm laying down the arbitrary law here. Jury and Daniel, you are both wearing the dunce cap for this one. Yeah, the um, share it. You each get to wear one half of the dunce cap, and I get to choose what kind of response. 
So doing next week's report is Daniel and Emmy as the uh, teacher's pet. Again, uh, you get to choose what form that reader report is going to take. Um, you're going to do a rewritten portion of a text from the book done as a different genre. Got it. Good choice. Good choice. So next time on Miss Charlotte's Finishing School for Wayward Readers, we'll be reading chapters 10 through 12 of Wuthering Heights. Uh, Daniel will, will be doing his report in the form of text from the book rewritten as a different genre. And that brings this third episode to a close. I'd like to thank our expert, Charlotte Sampson, for giving us her time and insight and long pauses tonight, very long pauses. Thank you, Charlotte. Um, also, this episode would not have happened without the contribution of my contributions of my fellow readers and book nerds, Daniel Wishes, Emmy Doe, and Judy Ito. Thanks to Rio Namegaya, who works tirelessly behind the scenes to keep the Yokohama Theatre Group from imploding under the weight of its own paperwork. Big thanks to Arden Akihiro Akane, who composed our theme tune and produced as of this recording. So in a way, you, the listener, are hearing it before we do. Don't say we never do anything for you. Speaking of which, thank you to our listeners. That's right, both of you. Hi, Mother. Sorry about the F-bombs. If you want to support the podcast, head over to the Okama Theatre Group webpage at ytg.jp and click the support button to make a one-time donation. Or, better yet, at this point, leave a five-star review on iTunes, Stitcher, or the podcast platform of your choice. Only leave a five-star review. Like Uber reviews, there is no room for nuance. Anything other than a five and you're telling people we suck. I know. I hate it too. It's the death of meaningful reviews. That's the world we live in. And finally, thanks to Emily Bronte, the somewhat intense and one imagines rather windswept dead woman who made this all possible. And we'll be back in days for episode four. Yeah, yeah, I haven't quite figured out the release schedule for this recording. Just I, check the show notes. All right, see you then. Class dismissed. I'm going to bed. Today, as a reminder, we're covering chapters seven to nine. Uh, this is episode three, Feathered Beaver. Let me just... <laughs> it came out really weird. Yes, please. Uh... <laughs> Let me try that again. This is Emmy Doe, here to show you what I know. Throwing down the dunce cap for the chapter recap. Seven, eight, nine, got the chapters in a line. It's clear I don't know how to rap, at least I'll try to rhyme. Thrust cross grained, they take Kathy in. Five weeks on the mend and they flip her to a ten. When Kathy's back to Wuthering Heights, Hanley's such a jerk. Edgar comes to visit and Heathcliff goes berserk. Christmas dinner sounds delish but the characters are fucked. The crew feasts but Kathy's sad and Heathcliff's out of luck. Chapter 8, Francis dies and Hingley's single dad. It's all too much, the guy can't cope and pretty much goes mad. Kathy's choice is labyrinthine, she wants a double life. Wild and free at Wuthering Heights, but also Edgar's wife. But double life's really hard and Kathy finally cracks. When Edgar tries to calm her down, she flips out and attacks.
chapter 9, Nelly Dean pulls a Dr. Phil. Ripping Kat's thoughts apart while staying pretty chill. Keith's heart and pride get shattered on a bench. Poor dude has to run away, Kat's ego is a wench. Kathy searches high and low, but Heathcliff is long gone. She falls ill, goes to the Grange, her time at heights is done. This audio podcast is a production of Yokama Theatre Group. Copyright 2020, all rights reserved.